The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Falling Through the Cracks. Feel alive and thrive with Dr. Rebecca Risk. Do you ever feel that even though nothing seems seriously wrong and you pass all the medical tests, that you still feel that your health, pain, and fatigue are completely out of control? It doesn't have to be that way. Listen to the tips and suggestions given on our program today and take back control of your health. Now, here is Dr. Rebecca Risk. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Falling Through the Cracks. I'm Dr. Rebecca Risk, and I'm your host today. Today, we're going to be talking about Lyme disease, which is an epidemic spreading across North America. And I just want to bring some more awareness to the complications of this disease. Um, Today, we're going to be speaking with Jillian Auger. Welcome to the show, Jillian. Good morning. Uh, Jillian spent most of her life feeling unwell and pushing herself despite constant health concerns. Although suffering from a myriad of symptoms, she completed university and established a career. Throughout these years, frequent visits to doctors did not reveal any answers to her health questions, and none of the tests performed could identify the source of her illness. Friends in her community helped form the Limelight Society after she was diagnosed, which raised awareness through art galas, concerts, and information campaigns. This small-town grassroots group did not only is not only educating the community but saving lives. It's Jillian's mission to prevent others from falling through the cracks because they pose a medical mystery. So, Jillian, I just want to uh, talk with you about how this all started for you. How did your illness start? Um, well, you know, I actually have been sick for most of my life, and looking back now, I can see a definite starting point, but the symptoms would ebb and flow, so it really made it difficult to understand the beginning of this whole journey. By 2012, my symptoms were constant and quite debilitating, but I truly believe it began in childhood. Okay, so if you were growing up being unwell, did this affect you um, feeling different from other people, or how did that show itself? Yes, I mean, as a kid, I always felt different. I could never really put my finger on it, but, you know, there'd be instances where perhaps we'd have a sleepover, you know, my friends could rebound the next day, whereas I would be exhausted and sick, or you know, track and field events, it would be so much fun, and I'd love running or doing high jump, but then it took so long to recover from that exertion. Yeah, it's definitely not normal as a, a child. Mm-hmm. You should be should be okay the next day. Right. Um, so did you feel that you had to work at things a little differently than other people just because you were so tired? Yes, I think I had to work so much harder. You know, I I was a type A personality and a perfectionist, and that's not actually a good combination for someone who's ill. And I just pushed myself to maintain an honor roll status, to do well in piano or any other hobbies. And so I would spend hours and hours memorizing pieces of music, hours studying. And, and I did succeed, but it took so much effort and so much time. 
Okay. So yeah, that could, definitely I can see that. I think I experienced the same thing um, with my, my illness of trying to do the things that you think are normal and uh, not being able to quite doing them the way that, that you mm-hmm. want to. Right. Um, so aside from the fatigue, what other symptoms did you experience in the beginning? In the beginning, I seemed to pick up a lot of infections. So I always had sore throats and swollen glands. I developed asthma. And then something strange happened. Uh, my mom remembers my personality changing. You know, I went from being a really happy, creative-go-lucky kind of kid to suddenly having lots of anxiety and issues with sleeping. And later on, um, in my teen years, there were moments where I would have severe brain fog or overwhelming fatigue, and then it would pass, and then I'd have hormonal problems or periods where I would turn jaundice, you know, and I'd have yellowish skin tone. So different symptoms would crop up, and then they'd ebb and flow. So there was never really a consistent pattern to any of the symptoms. I think that's common with infections as well, that it's never quite the same. Um, I know I experienced some similar things. I had a new symptom every month, and then mm-hmm. I'd kind of learn to adjust to it and then or get it, you know, more under control, and then I'd get something new. So that one would sort of you know, get pushed at, at the back because there was something right. else that was more forefront and, and you don't realize what you're dealing with until it sort of all builds up. And then mm-hmm. was there a certain point where you realized that there was something wrong and there's something you had to do about it? Mm-hmm. I think I always felt something was wrong. But then by the time I was 18 or 19, I actually began investigating it for myself. And there were for university was very difficult and I even had to quit for um, one full school year because I was just so exhausted and the brain fog made it difficult to focus and that's when I became quite concerned and I began seeing different physicians and you know tests were done and certain things did show up and you know we would treat that and as you said you know that symptom then would dissipate for a while and then I went back to university and was able to complete it but new symptoms came up. And so I was actually quite good at always going to a new doctor, following through with specialist appointments. And I did spend a lot of time doing tests in in doctor's appointments. And so what was your um, doctor's reaction? What were they telling you was going on? Um, Well, fortunately, I was treated very kindly. No one dismissed me. And they were open to running tests and just, you know, trying to piece all these Um, symptoms together but then what happened was we fell away from that model and I ended up seeing different specialists so for my heart problems you know I would see a cardiac specialist and for sleep problems and anxiety someone else and then a different specialist for reproductive health and hormonal imbalances and so I think that maybe was part of the problem because we didn't see it as one issue you know it was my body broken up into parts. And so, you know, we couldn't really piece it all together as one core problem at the root of it all. Yeah, I think that one of the problems with our healthcare system is that we don't look at the whole and we are compartmentalized and and our bodies don't work that way. So, um, you know, it's hard to figure out what's going on if you're going to heart specialists and it has nothing to do with your heart, even if you have heart symptoms. Yeah. So um, was there a time in in this when you weren't really getting, um, you know, you're going to all these appointments, which can be disheartening if not much comes from it. Was there a time that you felt hopeless about what was going on? Mm -hmm, Definitely. And 
I think my lowest point was in 2012 because by then all of those symptoms appeared and they stayed. So that was the first year that I didn't have any more good days or good spells. And the fatigue and pain were so bad that I couldn't concentrate on my work or on my hobbies. And I, at that point, started feeling really lost and almost like a failure because I thought, you know, I'm trying all these supplements, I'm following a special diet, I'm trying to take care of myself, and yet my body is failing me. Yeah, it's still not working when you're doing everything yeah. you're supposed to do and all the things they say to do when you're when you're unwell and none of it was working. That's right. Yeah, yeah, I had the same experience. I mean, I was already in a health field and uh, I still nothing was working at all because we still didn't know what was going on. So in the end, what was your diagnosis to figure out what this all was? Um, Well, in the end, we realized I was suffering from many, many infections that were just slowly taking over my body. And so I had Lyme, Babesia, Bartonella, Ehrlichiosa, different parasites. I was suffering from mold and a myriad of viruses, uh, most of which are related to chronic fatigue syndrome. And then later we discovered vasculitis and adrenal fatigue and a coagulation disorder. And actually, I ended up with a two-page list of all the infections and disorders that I actually was suffering from. Well, that must have... Well, how did you feel just getting that long list? You know, I was actually really relieved, which is strange. You know, I was sitting with the medical team, and I was told, you know, you're very, very ill, you have all these problems, if you had waited any longer, there would have been permanent damage, Um, we need to get on top of this, and so I think I should have been scared or even upset, but it was so nice to have an answer and to see this doctor and this nurse looking at me with confidence, like, we know what's wrong, and we have a plan of action to help you. You know, I think a lot of people feel that way. I, I felt the same because I'd been looking for 14 years for what was going on. And, and you know, it's Lyme isn't an easy diagnosis or easy journey, but when you're spending 14 years doing a bunch of stuff that um, isn't helping you, then it's nice to finally have that that direction. And I think it does give a lot of relief. It, it did yes. for me as well. Yeah. Yes, Absolutely. So how were you tested for Lyme? How did that, how did you go about to find that eventually? Well, initially I did a phone consult with a couple of doctors in the U.S. from Lyme clinics and then I found one that I really clicked with and so we made the trip and I spent time at the clinic and so there was definitely, you know, just a clinical diagnosis and then that led to lots of tests and so we did um, various blood tests through numerous labs, some in the U.S., one in Germany And then when all of those lab results came back, they had the same results. And that was really comforting to me, and it gave me confidence to move forward with the treatment plan because finally on paper we had evidence of what was wrong. Yeah, so so you mentioned a clinical diagnosis, and I know a lot of time people don't always get that same on paper for their Lyme that you did. Mm -hmm. So what exactly does that mean? What happened there? Well, with a clinical diagnosis, I... Well, it, would just, it was nice to have all of those symptoms make sense for one root problem. And so there are symptoms that match this disease. And if practitioners can make a clinical diagnosis and start treating regardless of a test result, that's a positive thing. But uh, most can't, you know, and there are rules in the mainstream medical field that you actually need 
a test result staying positive before treatment can begin. So, um, yeah, and there's a lot of times where people do test, especially those that are have been sick for a long time and their test comes up negative, but they do have a lot of signs and they're asymptomatic and they have that history. What do you tell those people? Well, I tell them to find a Lyme literate physician who has access to labs, you know, not the ones that are available in the local lab or in the mainstream medicine field. So I tell people, you know, don't, based this on the ineffective ELISA or Western blot test. And when you consider there are over 100 strains of Lyme bacteria in North America, over 30 strains of Bartonella, you can understand why you shouldn't rely on a test that, you know, just looks for antibodies for one or two strains. And plus, you know, the infection doesn't always live in the bloodstream. It likes to burrow into tissues and organs. And so in some cases, the blood work really isn't the most effective way to determine if a person has the disease. So I guess we should also talk about what exactly Lyme disease is. Mm-hmm. Well, I I don't always use the term because, like most people, I don't just have that Lyme bacteria. So I'm suffering from multiple pathogens, and some of them are parasites, some are bacterial. So it's really a multi-pathogen disease, and Lyme bacteria is just a portion of that. Okay. Um, so, um, wh- how were you tested? So you said you your tests were sent to Germany and and you did tests in the states. So, That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So you had so your we had different types, and so um, I didn't really have a lot of antibodies. So I think the pathogens kind of evaded my immune system, or maybe my immune system was so depleted that I didn't try to fight it off and develop antibodies. And so we did other blood test too. So then there were some PCR, some live blood analysis. Um, and then later I was able to have the biomeridian testing. And so I think it's important to try different types of tests. And even some people do the testing of the spinal fluid or tissue. Okay. So um, what did you do for the start of your treatment? How did that look for you? Um, it was quite intense because I was going downhill so quickly, so we needed something really aggressive to start because my organs were shutting down and my red blood cells weren't carrying oxygen, and so the hypoxia was wreaking havoc with my brain and heart and muscles, and so we chose the pharmaceutical route. So I had a central line, and we did IVs, injections, and lots of pills. Thankfully, my doctor was a functional medicine doctor, so there was a lot of supplements and support as well for my body and a detox plan. Okay. And um, how did you feel while you were doing your treatment? What was Awful. happening? Awful. <laughs> and that's what's so um, interesting because I think a lot of people don't understand that. They think, oh, you start treatment, you should feel better, but I actually got worse. And people in the Lyme world know the term herxing. And so my herxes were quite severe despite the detox plan and the extra hydration. Um, so I ended up needing full-time care. The treatments were very time-consuming, but I was so weakened. There were days I couldn't get out of bed. And so when I wasn't in the States, I actually had to live at home with my mom because I couldn't stand and cook. I couldn't clean. Um, I really couldn't even be left alone because there were days where I would have a seizure or I couldn't even get up the stairs to get a glass of water. And so treatment was brutal and it didn't actually get better until recently. 
Okay. Well, that, that part must have been hard. I mean, you finally have your direction, but you're um, not feeling better and um, not even been able to be at home as well, which must have been a lot harder for you. Mm-hmm. Leaving my husband and my hometown was difficult, um, but I was just so grateful to have my mom, and she researched hours every day, and she was so great at having specific um, recipe, you know, for each day that followed the alkaline anti-inflammatory diet, and she listened to every doctor's appointment and took notes, and so I really handed it all over to her, and I literally just laid in bed or on the couch, and she had to do everything, and so I'm grateful for that. A lot of Lymeys don't have that kind of support. Yeah, I was going to say, that's really rare to have somebody that can be there with you, especially all day. Mm-hmm. And a lot of time, there's somebody that you know has to go to work, or they're just helping you after if they are there. Um, so we're going to talk more. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to talk more about um, what happened um, you know, after you start to get better and going through treatment. If you have any questions as a listener to, uh, for Jillian or for me, feel free to call in. We are recording live. Or you can send us an email at anantacalgary at gmail.com or send us a message on Facebook or Twitter, and we'd love to hear your comments or questions. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Ouch! What do you think of when you think of dental procedures? Well, when you think about it, the teeth and the rest of the body are strongly connected. What happens in one part affects the other. In the Tooth Body Connection with host Dr. Don Ewing, we'll explain more about these concepts as well as discuss the role that your teeth play in your overall health. You'll learn about amalgams and how removing them the wrong way can be toxic to your body. Tune in Fridays at 2 p.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health and Wellness. The largest syndicated alternative health talk program has come to the Voice America Network. The Dr. Bob Martin Show is the program that will answer your health questions and help you to heal your own body of many different ailments. Each week, you'll hear the answers that Dr. Bob gives to his callers that help them to be their own doctor most of the time. We'll also discuss developments on the health care front and what you need to do to keep your body in top form. The Dr. Bob Martin Show airs Wednesday mornings at 9 a.m. Eastern, 6 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health and Wellness. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Falling Through the Cracks with your host, Dr. Rebecca Risk. To reach the program today, please call in to 1 866 472 5792. Again, that's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email directly to Dr. Risk. The email address is anantacalgary at gmail.com. Now, back to Falling Through the Cracks. Feel alive and thrive. Hi, everybody. I'm Dr. Rebecca Risk, and um, today we're talking about Lyme disease with a um, Lyme sufferer, Jillian Auger. And uh, we talked in the first segment about just how hard it was for you to get diagnosed. And, and of course, the treatment was hard as well. You said you had to live um, with your mother and leave home because you were so sick. Now, aside from, you know, the herxing and all that, was there anything else that you um, had to go through through treatment? 
Well, I think initially um, I just kind of went into survivor mode, you know, and I just turned my emotions off and we just did what we had to do. But the traveling did wear me out. Sometimes we would fly, you know, to the clinic. Other times we made the long journey with the motorhome or a car. Um, so just the traveling when you feel so sick and unwell was difficult and definitely strained my body. And then the financial strain caused a lot of worry. You know, we were paying four to $5,000 a month for these trips and for medications, and that really wore on me emotionally. And then even simple things like the diet change, you know, there's a specific diet that we have to follow, and that can be difficult to adapt to because when you're so tired, all you really want to do is eat carbs and drink coffee, right, which (laughs) impedes healing. And so, you know, there were small things that were challenges, and then there were bigger things that wore me up too. Yeah, and so you you started your treatment with um, antibiotics, is that right? That's right. Yeah. And then did you have a central line put in for that? Mm-hmm. So I had a pick line at first and then a central line. And, you know, I did IVs constantly every day for two and a half years. And, you know, going back and looking at it, I still feel that was the right choice. It stabilized my body. It really helped um, clear up a lot of underlying health issues, even with just dehydration. Um, and then eventually... I felt like I plateaued and it was time to try something else. So what did you do um, when you plateaued? Well, I actually had a bit of a breakdown because, you know, I had researched the pharmaceutical route. I understood it. I really put my trust in it. And then when that seemed to plateau, plus we realized emotionally, like I just, I could not continue making all these trips to the U.S. I did have a moment of feeling lost. Like now where do I turn? What do I do? And so truthfully, I didn't really know. And I was grateful my mom handed me a book by Stephen Buhner. And in one of the first chapters, he said, you know, there's no set protocol. There's no one size fit all cure. There are many ways to deal with this. And, you know, that was just really liberating for me to think, okay, I don't have to just rely on pharmaceuticals. There are other avenues to get me back to a place of health. Well, I think that's an important thing to to note because a lot of people get stuck in, I need to do this one thing. Um, and then, you know, when they do plateau, um, they stay at that plateau because they're scared to change something because, you know, mm-hmm. like you said, it did help you so much. And then, of course, it probably was scary to change something that had helped you so much. Um, even though it had stopped working at some point, it got you to a point of it probably able to live a little easier. And then you, you did have to change at the end there. That's right. And so that became normal. And then we had to find a new normal. And I had to put my trust in other practitioners and other ways of healing. Yeah. And um, when, well, of course, one complication also is that there's so much out there for people with Lyme to decide on. Um, what direction to take is also a little bit scary because it can be really overwhelming. And uh, I know that, yeah, the most important thing I tell people is make sure that you're comfortable with your choice. It doesn't matter what it is. It must be something that's working, something you can commit to for a long time like you did. You did two year or two of antibiotics before you realized it, it wasn't working anymore. And it had worked in the beginning. So it's important to give it that time when yeah. it you know, because of the herxing and, and all of that. And it is a matter of trial and error. And so I had to be really gentle with myself. And, you know, if, if a certain 
protocol wasn't working. I couldn't allow myself to feel like I failed. It was just that wasn't right for me and my body, so it was time to try something else. And so we just have to be very patient in finding what works and what doesn't work. Yeah. And you said that you had other complications aside from Lyme and the co-infections. How did you approach those? Well, gratefully, you know, with my family doctor, we were able to deal with that. So I had lots of issues with digestion, so I wasn't digesting my food. I had episodes of hypoglycemia, and when we did the blood fasting test, we realized between um, fasting and then eating, my blood sugar would only rise by three points. So essentially, I wasn't absorbing any nutrients. And then we realized it was because I had four infections in my GI tract. So she helped me kill those infections off and learn about enzymes and bile salts, you know, and just how to eat properly so that the food would digest. And then we had to deal with my vasculitis because my blood vessels are very weak and they burst and we were dealing with my coagulation disorder because my blood was very, very thick, and then the adrenal fatigue and thyroid issues. And so really there were all of these underlying problems and infections that I needed a lot of help with. I think that's really common when people have chronic Lyme. I mean, if you've had it your whole life, it's going to affect more than one system, and it's going to you know, take a while to sort all those out, and, and you have to support all those systems at the same time. So it ends up really complicated looking at you know, adrenals, thyroid, digestion, um, mm-hmm. you know, like your vasculitis and everything else that's going on, which are all very common, so common they all need to basically be treated for almost everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, which adds to, of course, the cost and the, you know, the list of supplements you have to take and the complication of, of what's going on because you don't want to ignore something, but you don't want to over-medicate either. That's right. And so yeah. we found meds that were synergetic with each other. So there are certain herbs that will treat multiple problems but also support the organs. And so it took lots of time and research, and it takes a long time to write out, you know, the daily medical list for the day. But um, with time and research and help from various doctors and practitioners, people usually can piece together a pretty good protocol that treats the infections but also supports the body. Yeah, that's important. Um, not just the antibiotics, because then you don't get that body support. And I know if I if people are just doing antibiotics, they actually don't get better because there's there's other aspects to their illness, like you know the co-infections. You said you had mold and parasites, and then of mm-hmm. course if you're not looking at the adrenals or the thyroid or whatever else is being affected, you're still going to be tired at the end, and you don't know if it's because you still have the infection or because your body is just tired from what it went through. That's right. And people also have to be on a very specific detox program. And if people are not detoxing throughout whichever protocol they're choosing, they can do permanent damage. And, you know, a toxic load is sometimes more dangerous than the infections. Yeah, I think that's something that um, is hard to explain to people in the beginning. It's really common for them to like want to hurry up. And they want mm-hmm. to get better faster and they want that magic wand, which I, I do wish I had for people. Um, and uh, that that toxic load is um, just as, you know, the die off of the Lyme is just as dangerous. Mm-hmm. It is. And, you know, nothing teaches patients better than this disease. You know, hurrying up treatment will do harm. And people really need to be patient. And, you know, it might take months 
to get up to a full dose or a therapeutic level of herbs or tinctures, but that's okay. It's better than taxing the liver or doing more damage to the body. Yeah. So how long was, how long did you do antibiotics for? Two and a half years. Okay. And then you plateaued after that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so have you just started doing the, the other route? Right. So now it's been about six months and I can't believe the improvement and things are definitely changing. So even week to week now I'm noticing improvements, which is pretty remarkable. And I understand that's not a common story. I meet lots of people who are entering year 10 or 15 of treatment and they feel kind of the same. So I understand that this is maybe a bit rare, but I am feeling much better. I never had entire good days. You know, it used to be an hour or two of feeling well, but now I'll have, you know, eight or nine hours in the day where I feel quite good. That's a pretty big deal. It is, yeah. (laughs) That's most of your day, really. I mean, Mm -hmm. I remember when I started to get better, it was, you know, half an hour. Right. You're like, oh, I feel good. I'm going to go do something. (laughs) Yeah. Because you don't know how long it's going to last, and then you might make plans, but it'll disappear by the time the plans are ready to happen. Yeah, I learned not to make plans because I ended up canceling constantly, and I understand that, you know, I still have a long way to go. And, you know, just two days ago, I had a flare-up. You know, my husband had to come home from work and help me because I was in so much pain. I wasn't able to get up off the couch. And, you know, there are going to be days that are bad or there are flare-ups. But overall, this new protocol with Cowden Protocol and Chinese medicine, it's really working for my body. Well, I'm glad to hear that. Um, that's what helped me as well. Um, so I know that you have have taken um, this in a, a direction to help other people. So can you just tell me how the Limelight Association got started? When I returned to my hometown um, from being in the States and with my mom, people had so many questions and they were curious. You know, I had just disappeared. You know, I went from teaching and volunteering in the community to missing in action, basically, and people didn't know yeah. what was going on. So... It actually started with the local paper interviewing me just so I could spread the word, you know, pretty easily through an article. And people started calling for help, saying, you know, I think I have Lyme. How do I get tested? And I was asked to visit locals, you know, whenever I felt well or even just to phone them and kind of walk them through the process. And so I realized, you know, there has to be more awareness and I can't do this alone. And so I rallied a group of friends and acquaintances to help me to form this society. Oh, that's great that you had such a strong community. I don't think that always happens. Sounds like you know, you're... I'm told that where yeah. I live, it is um, very different. You know, people seem very open-minded, very generous, and I'm just really happy that I live where I do because of all of the support. Yeah, I, I don't always hear stories like that about Lyme. Um, you know, sometimes you hear the opposite and mm-hmm. uh, to have a community that's so supportive, I think you've been really lucky um, in your yes. journey. Yeah. So um, what exactly does Limelight uh, do for Lyme awareness? Well, most of our members um, now that have joined are Limeys, and so our energy is pretty low, so we're grateful for all the healthy members who can do a lot of the work for us. And so we've decided to do more of an arts and culture with our events. So local artists will put on an art gala and people can purchase the paintings and glasswork. 
Um, so it's more of an arts day, but they're handed information online, and our members are sitting at different tables able to answer questions that they have. Or we'll host concerts, and there will be um, maybe a short presentation during an intermission about Lyme disease. And our local media is really supportive. So every May they run articles in the paper talking about tick bite prevention, what to do if you're bit by a tick. And we even had a local restaurant this May do a Lyme-themed drink and food menu for us. And so it's just raising awareness, making people think before they go out hiking and camping and doing yard work that they need to be tick aware. Yeah, so... What are, when people call you for, you know, that support and saying that they're ill, what are common patterns that you see um, in, in Lyme, Lymeys um, that are finally diagnosed with Lyme when they first call? Well, and that's just it. Usually they call when it's been years of suffering. You know, the diagnosis is coming quite late. And so it really stresses me out and breaks my heart because most of the people who phone and email have been sick for years and have similar stories to yours and mine. Uh, many of them were initially diagnosed with MS or fibromyalgia, and then when they do the testing, they realize they never did have MS. It was, you know, Lyme disease and Babesia and these infections all along. And so we're trying to change that pattern where people consider Lyme as a last resort. We're trying to get people to consider Lyme First, get tested for that first. Um, and if it's negative and you don't have it, okay, then do the other testing. So I think it is an epidemic. I think a lot of people do have this disease, and I just wish they would come to us as soon as they had the tick bite or feel that something's wrong. Well, I mean, why is that that people don't? What are, what are common stories that you hear of why it's been left for so long? Well, most people tell me they were confident in their MS or lupus um, diagnosis because they did have the symptoms and they don't learn until later that Lyme mimics these diseases. So, you know, they have the lesions on the brain. Well, so do Lyme's. They have mobility issues. So do we. Seizures. So do we. And so there's that element where we have a disease that mimics other things. Um, the other thing is a lot of people don't remember a tick bite. So they'll say to me, well, I was never bit by a tick. How could I possibly have Lyme disease? Um, others say I had a tick bite, but I didn't have the bullseye rash. Therefore, I wasn't infected. And so we really have to re-educate people on these ideas. Well, and I, I read a study recently that it was about uh, 20 to 30% of people um, only remember a tick bite, which is pretty significant when, um, you know, your history is supposed to be a tick bite and a bullseye rash and you don't remember your tick bite and, um, you know, the percent is about as low for those that actually get that telltale bullseye rash. And uh, I never got a bullseye rash. I just, I did get bitten by um, several ticks. I got had about 50 on me at a friend's cabin. But, um, you know, oh. it's... Uh, um, that didn't clue in until 14 years later when somebody asked me if I'd ever been bitten by a tick. We didn't connect uh, because the symptoms crept up so slow. We didn't ever connect that episode or that time with, um, you know, what was going on later in my life because it was so subtle. And so, and so you didn't have a rash. You probably didn't get the flu or a headache. no. no. And no, I didn't die. Yeah. I, you know, I think I suffered from some um, mood stuff and definitely sleep problems in my teens and early 20s. And then it wasn't until I had digestive problems. So everybody was looking at digestive issues. And that was, mm. they thought, related to my fatigue. 
but it it never was this full on looking like Lyme until you know I had a two page list of symptoms that had over 120, and yes. I don't think that in your 20s you should have that much going on wrong with your body. No, definitely not. <laughs> there's there's something wrong with that. So I know it's um um does get missed because it can hide that way. And that's, you know, even though I started looking in my 20s, my early 20s about what was going on, the symptoms were definitely not telltale. Lyme is this and only this because it's not a rash. It's not, it's not always a rash. It's not always the flu. And it's not always, you know, just as, um, it's sometimes it's debilitating. Sometimes it's subtle and people are just very tired. Yes. And because it looks so different, it's, hard to determine when someone has it, when they don't. And I dismissed it for a long time because I did know people with chronic Lyme disease and I didn't look like them and I didn't have the same symptoms. I thought, oh, well, surely I don't have Lyme. And because my tick bite was pretty common, you know, like no rash, no flu, no headache, I also dismissed that for many years. Yeah, I think that's really common. We're going to talk about this more after a break. We're sp- speaking with Jillian Auger, who is a um, Lyme sufferer, as well as uh, she started the Limelight Association in Drumheller, Alberta. If you have um, any questions about this show, you can call in, send us an email, or uh, follow us on Facebook or Twitter, and uh, we will love to hear from you. And we'll be back shortly. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. We are bombarded daily with information about beauty products and anti-aging treatments. Do you know how they have been tested? Are they truly going to make a change or just take the change out of your pocket? Tune in to Shelly's Show & Tell with host Shelly Hancock. We'll bring you the top-rated skincare products and treatments tested by Real Transformation Skin Care Centers. We'll motivate you to make the best changes. Listen Mondays at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Health & Wellness. In the spirit of Have Couch, Will Travel, Dr. Carol Lieberman creates a haven of sanity in an increasingly insane world. Each day we are bombarded with news of events that have never crossed our wildest nightmares. Society is spiraling out of control, and everyone is reeling from it. But now there's an answer. The best way to keep sane in this insane world is to tune in to Dr. Carol's Couch on Voice America. Dr. Carol, a certified media psychiatrist, will broadcast live from her Beverly Hills office every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time. Call or log in and get help with whatever is sending you reeling, whenever you need a soothing voice to calm and advise you. That's Dr. Carol's Couch every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time here on America's Voice, voiceamerica.com. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Falling Through the Cracks with your host, Dr. Rebecca Risk. To reach the program today, please call in to 1 866 472 5792. Again, that's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email directly to Dr. Risk. The email address is anantacalgary at gmail.com. Now, back to Falling Through the Cracks. Feel alive and thrive. Hi, everybody. This is Dr. Rebecca Risk. I'm speaking today with Jillian Auger, who is a uh, Lyme patient, 
um, as well as has started a, a limelight association to bring more well awareness to this disease. So Jillian, I do want to talk about um, just the modes of infection for um, Lyme. We did talk about a tick bite, but there, is there any other way that people can contract Lyme? Mm-hmm. And that's what's kind of interesting about this disease because some of you will say, well, I never had a tick bite and it doesn't always transfer that way. So it is congenital. So a mother will pass it on to her children. Um, it could happen, you know, in the womb with the fetus and it can also happen afterwards through the breast milk. And in that sense, it's kind of like HIV. And so we have to be really vigilant in helping women understand, you know, if you're suffering from Lyme disease and this is the possibility of passing it on to your children. Um, there's also other bugs, if you will, that are carrying Bartonella um, and other pathogens as well. So, you know, fleas can transfer some of these infections to people. And sadly, even through blood donations, our blood isn't screened for Babesia and Lyme, and so it can be passed on that way as well. I think that's definitely things that people don't think about at this point. Um, There is so much denial that there is um, this much Lyme out there that we're not looking at, um, you know, educating people enough, which I think is great that your association is doing so much to protect everybody. Um, So what are um, tick prevention um, things that you recommend to people? I tell people just to be mindful. That's, you know, the first things. If you're mindful of it, then you're more likely to do a tick check, wear appropriate clothing. And so when people are hunting or hiking or even just walking their dogs in an off-leash area, they really need to be mindful of that. Like, you know, touch, tuck your socks into your pants, wear bug spray. You know, it could be DEET or some sort of natural solution with essential oils do a tick check when you come into the house. And when you consider the size of a nymph tick, you know, we're talking about something the size of a freckle or smaller. And so we have to be looking in the areas of our body where they like to hide, armpit, belly buttons, in the hairline. And I tell people if they're doing yard work um, and they're going in and out of the house, maybe they should consider throwing those work clothes in the dryer because ticks die in heat. So that's what I do if I'm in and out all of a sudden, I just throw my husband's clothes and mine in the dryer on high heat for 10 minutes, and then we can put them back on when we go for the next walk. And keeping the yard clean, you know, we put a layer of gravel around the circumference of our yard and got rid of a whole bunch of shrubs and bushes so that we don't have to worry so much about ticks living in our yard. I think it's important to note that the ticks do like the tall grass and, you know, some people will say that, oh, it's, it's not in my yard and they don't think about it that way. But I know my cat actually contracted Lyme at the same time that I did. And he was just out in our backyard and he brought um, ticks in the house, which is how I, I was actually waiting for my test at the time. And so I was like extra <laughs> freaking out about these ticks that yeah. <laughs> I found on my cat. And um, I didn't know what to do. And so I actually just killed the ticks, which is the wrong thing to do. Mm-hmm. And then he started limping. Oh. And uh, um, so I, of course, it was in my radar because I was waiting for my test and Um, I had to make the vet test him and our test came back at the same time and he was positive as well. And, you know, he's never left the city and uh, he was just playing in the backyard and of course in tall grass. 
That's yeah. what cats do, right? So I think and it's important. We have to remember that songbirds yeah. migrate, and so you know every spring robins are bringing thousands of eggs on their body, and when those hatch, you know they're singing in your tree. It's spring, but we don't realize they're bringing ticks into our yards, and that's where you know our cats and dogs might get infected. Yeah, yeah, and that's important to note that it's not just you going for a hike in the country and you have to be careful. You have to be careful in your city, in your parks, in your backyard, and you have to know how to protect your family and and keep that in mind that it's not just something, oh, I don't go hiking in the mountains, so it can't happen to me. That's right. So, um, of course, the prevention is, is the best way to wear the light color clothing and, and do tick checks. But what do you do? What do you tell people to do if they are bitten? There are a few ways to remove the tick properly. And so Limelight spends a lot of time telling people don't use a match or cover it up with Vaseline or soap. You know, that will irritate the tick and cause it to regurgitate the pathogens, you know, from its gut into the person's bloodstream, so they need to remove it properly. And there are a few methods, and there are even videos on YouTube on how to do this properly. So you can do the straw and thread method where the thin thread closes off the mouthpiece and pulls the tick straight up. I like the blister method where a physician can inject a solution to create a blister and then the tick crawls out on its own. Most people have fine needle-nosed tweezers and that works fine as long as they close off the barbed mouth and remove the entire tick because leaving a piece of the mouth or head in the skin will likely cause infection. We do have um, something in our office that we sell to people. It's quite new. It's called a tick twister and it's made just the same way tweezers would be. The important thing is to make sure you're not going to break off any part of the tick when you're removing it. You don't want the head or any little bit of the mouth to break off. So just yanking it or twisting it. So this one is called a tick twister, but really it just goes um, and it does pull the tick off the same way the tweezers would. And it's quite um, easy to use, just like the the uh, tweezers. Mm-hmm. And everyone should have that with them, you know, whether it's in their house and their first aid kit and definitely with their camping gear or hunting gear. Yeah, and, you know, tweezers and even just a piece of thread, if you're going to use that method, mm-hmm. they don't take up a lot of space. So it's not hard to just have those on you all the time. Now, exactly. what, do you, what do you recommend that people do with the ticks after they're removed? Well, we encourage people to put them in a tightly sealed container with maybe a wet cotton ball or some grass um, if it's still alive. And, you know, even if it's, it was killed in the process of removal, like get all the parts um, and then send them away for testing. And a lot of people will send them to their local health authorities, but we have some really great research going on in a university in our province. And so um, we encourage people to send their ticks to that researcher and then she can decide, you know, if she's going to test them for certain pathogens and if she finds them, you know, she's recording that information. And then if a piece of the tick is missing, she can also tell the person, you know, I check again, like there's a mouthpiece missing. Um, And that's important for a person to know after removing the tick. Yeah, because that can create some infection and some other other issues. Yeah. So um, what are... So if you remove the tick and, and say you've done all that, what are signs that people should look for if they do have an infection? Usually they'll start with feeling sluggish, um, getting headaches, 
you know, like we said, few will develop that elusive bullseye rash, but if you do have a rash, I mean, that is a sure sign. But like me, most people won't sense anything for quite a while, and so just remember the tick bite, and then I tell people, you know, keep a list of your symptoms, and you might feel tingling in the hands or, you know, almost like an arthritis type pain and stiffness that's quite common. And then, of course, digestive disorders are quite common as well in the beginning. Um, so uh, is there um, anything, should uh, people go talk to their doctor even if they are bitten and they don't have any of those starting up? Is there anything they can do to prevent it even if they're not getting symptoms? Should they do anything? I think so, but the problem is it's really difficult just to walk into a clinic and, you know, ask for a prescription for doxycycline for six weeks. Um, you know, I would think that's the best way, and there are also lots of herbs to take after a recent bite, and people can order those online or find um, a doctor, a naturopath, or a Chinese medicine doctor to help with that. So I think... It might take some diligence, but certainly a person should keep going to offices and making appointments until they treat, because there's no harm in treating just in case. Yeah, and I, I think it's important to note that there are herbs. So if you are even just going out in an endemic area, there's some things you can take. Um, Nutramedic sells a supplement uh, called Cemento, which is a version of cat's claw. And even cat's claw can work as well. And that can actually boost your immune system so that if you are exposed, um, your body will be able to take care of the infection, hopefully before it, it um, becomes systemic like yours and mine did. And the best thing, of course, is to prevent. So when people come to me saying that they were bitten, even if I don't think anything happened, I'll still give them that for about, you know, four to six weeks because um, it won't hurt them. Right. And, uh, and it's better to be preventative. It's the same as going into a malarial endemic area and taking malaria medication. You know, we want to prevent you from getting sick, which is um, way easier than actually dealing with the infection the way that you and I had to. And that's maybe the most sad part of this whole story is that all of us could be well if we had known this information or had someone help us in the first four to six weeks after the bite. Yeah, and, and um, you know, to, to uh, a lot of people, I hear this a lot, that we don't have Lyme in our area, and I, um, I know vets in this area are, are testing dogs and reporting Lyme that way, but um, doctors keep insisting that it's not here. So what do you tell people when they run into, you know, doctors saying it's not here, you don't need to worry? I tell them that... <laughs> They have to be persistent with this and just keep going to different clinics until they find a doctor willing to work with them. Um, what happens is a lot of us are treated and we're not reported, so we're not part of the statistics. So, I mean, if we look at statistics, sure, it doesn't look like it's an epidemic, but we're not really accounted for in the reports and stats. And so I tell people it is here. Many people are suffering with it, and most of us were infected in our backyards or out hiking in our um, hometowns, and so they have to keep pursuing this. And the bottom line is, it is here, and they have to seek treatment. Uh, I, I think that's important. I know it, it's really easy to be talked out of this because of the politics around it. And the part that hurts me the most about that is 
the suffering that that causes for people. And uh, when your doctor can't find an answer and then you get a you know positive Lyme test, it is something that you should continue to pursue even mm-hmm. if you're you know um, caught up in the politics of what is going on here mm-hmm. because it, it's, um, it just gets worse and worse and becomes yeah. quite debilitating. Yeah. So how, how are you feeling now, just so that everybody can end on a better note? <laughs> well, you know, it does depend on when you ask me. So most days are quite good, you know, and when I look back to where I was three years ago, um, I feel like a different person, definitely. And I still have some major health problems, you know, and I'm not able to work yet. And even just cleaning my home and making food and walking my dog is a process for me, but I'm still thrilled that I'm able to do those things. And I feel more in control. Um, This new protocol makes me feel like I'm supporting my body, that we are killing the pathogens, but also finding ways just to support me and give me a better quality of life. That's great. So if there's anybody listening to this show um, that feels like they need some help, is there any way that they can get a hold of your association? Mm-hmm. We used to do social media, but then we found it was a little overwhelming for us and even impersonal. And so I think emailing is best. And people will have other Lyme groups in their area. And ILADS um, is excellent, too, for helping them find some place to get tested and treated. But if they want to send us an email and just explain what they're going through and their symptoms and what their specific questions are, they can email us at limelightsociety at gmail.com. Okay, that's great. Well, thank you for joining us, Jillian, and sharing such a personal story. I do appreciate it. Well, thank you so much. So if any of you feel that the story has touched you or that you have been touched um, by Lyme, then please contact um, us or your local Lyme literate doctor. You can contact us on email at nanticalgary at gmail.com, on Twitter or Facebook, and we'd love to hear your comments. Next week, we're going to, we're going to be talking with Baja Medgate, which is a center in Mexico that treats Lyme and other chronic illnesses in a different way. Um, please tune in um, every Monday, 9 a.m. Pacific time. Um, We love hearing from you and we love that you're listening. Thank you and make today a great day. Thank you for tuning in to this week's edition of Falling Through the Cracks. Feel alive and thrive. Please join Dr. Rebecca Risk again next Monday at noon Eastern Time and 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll talk more next week. 